Hey everybody, this is Father Chris Rodriguez from Trinity Episcopal Church, coming at you with the Screwtape Letters study, week five, five. or whatever. I think it's five. Uh, so we're going to try a little bit of a different tack today. There's a few people here in the studio that are here to ask questions. You are also invited to ask questions during the study with the text that is online, the text number there, which is on the website. Um, we'll do our best to answer questions if you text them in to us. So uh, we're going to start at... Right now, we're going to probably cover uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20 today. We're going to mm. slow this thing down. Paul Gallagher, who's sitting in the uh, studio with us right now, made a suggestion last week. He said, hey, Father, why don't we like, go slower? I said, you know, that's a really good idea. <laughs> because the original plan for this was to do it in Lent, which was five weeks. Mm. Well, that's now no longer the case. And so we have the opportunity to stretch this out a little bit longer, have mm. some more discussion and hopefully not uh, walk out of here in a, in a bit of a spin like we've been mm -hmm. doing the past couple of weeks. So we're going to slow it down. We'll do 18, 19, and 20 today. Uh, hopefully you have some questions online, questions in the studio here. Father Josh and I are going to do a back and forth here and, uh, and um, kind of do it, try a different strategy. So hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Glad to see you all here today. And why don't we start in prayer. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lord God, we thank you for this day, for bringing us here together, this beautiful day. We pray for your blessing upon our time together here and also virtually. We thank you, Lord, for C.S. Lewis, for his many works, including this one we study today, the Screwtape Letters. We ask that it would be used by your Holy Spirit to challenge us and guide us in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with chapter 18, which has to do with all sorts of different things. And I'm going to maybe kick it off here, and then Father Gritter will chime in, I'm sure, with some Woody comments. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But you know, one of the things, Father, I found out about yeah. uh, 18 as you, as you kick us off is this yeah. idea of, um, I mean, it's a hard one. It comes, it comes off and it hits you right across the face with something I think a lot of people find pretty difficult. So, yes. um, I mean, what do you think about what might that chapter be? 18? Oh, you're throwing me into it. Um, I, think, uh, I, think, I think one of the things that starts off is, is the, um, according to Screwtape, what, like, there's a, di a dilemma that God has placed us into, right? Uh, right. Something of two choices. How did you define the dilemma last time we talked about this? Well? Uh, decision with two choices. Okay. Mm -hmm. Trilemma. C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma okay. is with three choices. So a dilemma would be two choices. Yeah. Either or. And the either or, uh, and this is the quote from uh, chapter 18 in Screwtape, uh, he says, the enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy in the terms of, um, well, sexual relations mm -hmm. is, is one of the hard things that he says. And right. so uh, I did some poking around on this uh, since the last time we talked about this, and I wanted to find some statistics about, you know, how people respond to this, like what most people think about, um, you know, premarital sex. And it's really interesting. In our current culture, I found out that 79% uh, and this broke it down by men and women in this study, 79% of non-Christian men have had premarital sex, uh, while 73% of Christian men have had premarital sex. And you find this, I, you know, I pay attention to this stuff because of youth group and youth studies and um, yeah, sure. the age that people can really get sucked into this now with everything that's available online. And uh, it's fascinating. Uh, one other statistic to throw out here is uh, from 1943 to 1999, um, the attitudes toward premarital sex have changed in a culture as a whole, where um, this is about women. Young women's approval has increased from 12% to 73% approval of, of premarital sex during that time. From what to what? Uh, 1943 to 1999. So what, in that 50-ish year period, it goes from 12% to 73%. Wow. Um, 
And 40, again, numbers are higher for men, uh, 40% to 79% among young men. And then one more statistic, I'm just throwing things out there to everybody. Uh, as of 2005, so this is, what, 15 years ago now? Mm -hmm. Less than 25% of people believe that premarital sex is, uh, that the poll said, always or almost always wrong. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. To see this change in the view of things over time. What do you think that is? What, what's, that, what's the cause of that, you think? Well, there's a few. So I looked into that, too, because I was really curious, right? It's like, what, what, why have things, you know, changed? And obviously, there's the whole rise of Hugh Hefner and all that stuff we don't need to get into. But some other reasons um, were the availability of contraception, mm -hmm. uh, reduced parental supervision, you know, apparently, and I'm too young to have known this, there was a time, there was a time where, you know, even dates... Your, even though your birthday is tomorrow. Even though my birthday is tomorrow, I'm two years away from wisdom, uh, as my rector told me one time. No, I'm kidding. Um, I did tell you that. <laughs> you did tell me that. I was trying to give you cover. Um, uh, you know, what's interesting, so contraception was one, reduced parental supervision. So, uh, you know, there used to be a time, apparently, where, front, where dates would take place on front porches, you know, everybody in town knew everybody, but with the advent of the car right. and people driving everywhere, there was a lot more freedom and privacy that was associated with that. Right. Uh, you know, the onset of puberty has come a lot earlier, mm. and um, there's also a decline overall in uh, the importance of marriage to people. Hmm. You know, like, like, you know, most people are not getting married. They don't really see a reason yeah. to. But they're having children. Yes, that's but to a your very point. point. But they're having children. Putting the proverbial cart before the horse. Yeah, and so there's a lot of regions culturally yeah. that that these things are that these things are taking place, um, and it's it's really tempting, I think, for a lot of people to capitulate to mm -hmm. the modern view of what relationships are. You know, they use, they use terms like kick the tire or whatever else to talk about actual human beings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and to that point, though, I'm looking at actually my notes here for chap or uh, letter 18. Paragraph two, hmm. uh, Lewis talks about how all of these dynamics, right, the premarital sex stuff, the availability of contraception, the, all these different things, and this idea of being in love as the arbiter for determining what is right and wrong, hmm. kind of going hand in hand, right? And he says here that, um, that the demonic motive is to render uh, this excitement, right, this original sort of excitement of being in love, whatever that mm. means, right, yeah. to find that one. You can write yeah. songs about it, but no one really knows what it means, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so that this idea of being in love, um, uh, this excitement should be permanent, and a marriage that, which does not maintain that level of the original mm. excitement, right, the first date kind of thing, when that, that if that wears off, that the marriage is no longer binding. This is the end of... Uh, of paragraph two. I thought that was really helpful. Hmm. So not only have sexual mores changed, right, in the past 50 years, probably hmm. even more so in recently, but, but the idea of marriage being something which is all about excitement and uh, newness and being in love and that when that fades away and in, invariably does because people change and grow up and mature, hmm. you know, that that means people oftentimes think that that marriage is no longer a valid marriage. Right which is really tragic. And he goes in to say, um, anyway, anybody have any comment on that? I think that's actually a very important point. When I do premarital counseling with couples, usually they're younger couples, but not always. The first thing I say to them is, why do you want to marry, you know, Joan, why do you want to marry Bill, right? And she says, because he's funny or whatever. And then I'll say, well, what I say, Bill, Bill, why do you want to marry Joan? And I'll usually say, because she's hot, <laughs> typically, or she's, you know, whatever, she makes me laugh, she's good company. But if you think about it, hmm. every time somebody gives me that answer, and I do, kind of, I do set them up a little bit on this to make, make this point, you know, invariably, no matter what they say, whatever, the answer is always what this person does for me. 
right? She's mm -hmm. hot, and I, I like, you know, well, it's okay, great. Uh, or he makes me laugh, okay, great. But in all cases, we've, we've learned this so much in our own being that we actually look at other people, like Lewis says, of being carnivorous and consuming them, right? This idea of, of, of other beings being in competition. We don't think of it that way, but when we say that we are in love with a person because of what they do for me, we're essentially, you could call it consumerism, you could call it consumptuism. Hmm. The idea is, what does this person do for me? And as long as they do that for me, this marriage is good. Hmm. But guess what? That will change. And I always say to people that, and this is Lewis's point in the letter, right? That, that the demonic view is, um, of love or relationships in general is competitive or consumer, right? Hmm. Consuming, taking from another person. Whereas the Christian view is the exact opposite, is giving to somebody. Just recently, I was talking to a couple about this premarital, not even really premarital counseling, but just sort of kicking around the tires and nurture if they want to get married. And I said, well, listen, if you're not sure, then you probably shouldn't. But secondly, when you, when you discern through this, remember that the question really is not what does this person do for me, but do I want to commit my entire life to them? In other words, am I, am I going to make my entire life about building that person up to be the best, in my case, my wife, Kathleen, am I willing to devote my life to making her become the best Christian woman she can be, and vice versa, so that the, the couple actually does not consume from each other, but pour into each other, like the Trinity does. Yeah, and I think, I think to, go right. on, to go to that point of, you know, um, it's about feeling and that feeling of being in love and that, you know, that chemical reaction, whatever, whatever you want to call that, right. that chemistry. Um, it's fascinating because I've also seen a lot of people give really bad marital advice, like one, when they're having problems, is, oh, you need to spice it up, you know, like you need to change it up, you need to, you know, you like, like, you know, some kind of like, you know, thing that you have to do to try to bring that back. Right. And so bring many times, the, right, bring yeah, back. bring back the mojo or whatever you want to call it. But so many times it's like, you know, you need, no, you need to look at what some of your root issues are that are causing you to feel some sense of um, contempt for your partner or defensiveness and like work through those and connect with them on a deep level. You don't just need to, you know, well, you guys need to go on a vacation together. I mean, sometimes that's helpful, but if you're not addressing those root causes, you know, the goal like, you know, isn't to reignite that flame. And, but what's amazing about the way God works is that if you do address root or systemic issues, that comes, that's right. but it comes in a much more full and, and, you know, a much more full way than it was at the beginning, right? Because right? you're actually yeah. dealing with a person and not um, an ideal. Yeah, and again, to your point, the two becoming one flesh, right? That's not just a metaphor. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really look at your, uh, I mean, lots of people have relationships with, with the opposite sex and maybe even fall in love with them. It doesn't mean you get married to them. The idea of, of, uh, of the two becoming one in sexual union, which is what scripture says, in a sexual union, whether you're married or not, that sexual union makes the two become one in some Lewis says some transcendental way, whatever that means. I, mean, I know what transcendental means, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure it applies to this context. But anyway, the idea being when the two become one as a husband and wife, you know, you are now, your body, you know, what, what does Paul say? No man hates his own body, mm -hmm. hates his own flesh. And so if you look at your wife as, I don't want to say an extension of you, but, but I'll say that as a, as a way to keep the metaphor, your wife is an extension of your body and vice versa, you know, you would never be cruel to your own self unless you're a sadist or something, right? So if you see the person of your spouse as your other half, right, that we say, mm. your better half, they say, that, that's really helpful. And it goes back to the idea of marriage being pouring into somebody else and not what, not what do I get, but what can I do? And if you find, find marriages where both people are doing that, and invariably one does more than the other, typically depending upon where you are in the season of your marriage, 
Um, but if two people can pour into each other like that intensely and know what to do, uh, their marriage is sore. I find long marriages last a long time, that people are still in love, and that mean, mean they still love each other and want to be committed to each other. It's people that always pour into each other, if not equally, at least with, with the same desire and intent. Mm. You know? And I think commitment has a lot to do with your willingness to, to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I think you touched on briefly last week is this idea that this, this two becoming one flesh, um, it's, it's, it happens whether or not you're married when you engage in, in you know, sexual activity with somebody else. You know, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. You know, he's, he's saying, um, you know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Right. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, two will become one flesh. Right. So it's not just even the covenant of marriage. It's even just physical union that unites you body and soul to another person. And that's a really hard thing for people to, it's a really hard thing for people to swallow. It's also a really hard thing for people to realize. And we've mm-hmm. since learned, you know, all sorts of um, uh, things that you don't like to think about, like, you know, the bonding chemicals of oxytocin and vasopressin that happen when you're uniting to a person. Um, but, you know, there, there really is, in, in all senses, spiritual, physical, emotional, a monogamous, lifelong commitment that happens in that context. Yeah, he's, he makes that point here. He says in, I think it's the second, it's the last paragraph hmm. of letter 18, and then Paul's got a question. Uh, Lewis says about that very thing, that in the context of sexual union between a man and a woman, he says here, a transcendental relationship, sorry, a transcendental relation is set up between them, I love this, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look at look at uh, look at any music. Vi- I, mean, I don't watch MTV anymore, but are there even videos on MTV no. anymore? <laughs> Back in the '80s, there were. When I was in high school. But the idea, right? To Paul's point, is the culture now so pushes being in love again, whatever that means. Who knows what that means? Uh, is is the grounds for being married, and the and the culture pushes that. And not only does the culture push that, but it's this idea of sort of. Uh, sexual consumerism as a result of that, you know? I mean, watch the, watch the halftime show at the, at the Super Bowl and you'll see what I mean. So, mm-hmm. is that fair, Paul? I mean, uh, and you mentioned something about, earlier about Instagram, too, didn't you? Oh, well, I'm... Or maybe you, you talked about it before. Yeah, I mean, that's... Well, we'll, we'll yeah, there's... So, it's, it'll be good if... Uh, I think in chapter 19 and 20, we get a little bit more into, like, some of the, the ways that culture has kind of impacted some of these things. Yeah. Uh, there's, okay. there's something I want to I ask you about, though, that I thought, was, I thought this was really, really fascinating. In fact, I thought this was more fascinating even in the conversation about um, husband and wife is when Screwtape talks about the philosophy of hell mm. versus the philosophy of heaven. Yeah. You know, what he says is, um, this is also chapter 18, the whole philosophy, and you touched on this earlier, the whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one self is not another self. Right. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more or less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. Right. Thus, he is not content even himself to be a sheer arith- arith- arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one, um, in order that this nonsense about love might find a foothold in his own nature. Mm. That, to me, you know, because there's a couple windows in these chapters uh, that we talked about earlier, where you just get a real, you get a real insight in kind of the deeper workings, the philosophies that are behind all of these thoughts of um, what you, you know, the consumption of one another and, and competition social, and social pride. Darwinism is all over this. It is. Yeah. Yeah, that whole concept. And you know what he's saying here yeah. is that the philosophy of hell is a, is a zero sum game. Right. 
where, where any gain is another person's loss. Right. Yeah, he says here at the end of, at the bottom, at the end of uh, paragraph three, uh, uh, with, for example, with beasts, the absorption takes the form of, rela- of, of uh, competition, of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of the weaker self into its stronger. That's mm-hmm. just evil, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says, to be means to be in competition. I've been thinking about this all week because this is social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. This is the underpinning worldview of socialism, atheistic socialism. This is the underpinning world, worldview of uh, a lot of the political culture in our today, right? I mean, both liberal and conservative. I'm not, I'm not going that direction. I just mean in terms of the underlying idea of competition and, and, and antagonism and you know, my, you know, my power struggle, power struggle, right. Yeah. You know, um, Nietzsche's famous, uh, the will to power, right. Mm-hmm. If I can do it, if there's no God, right. If I can do it, I will. It's competition. So that's kind of a segue, but yeah, but it's, it's true. Like a zero, zero sum game, you know, that's any, any time where you have a pie, you look at anything as a pie, right. And each person can only have a particular slice and the bigger your slice is a smaller mine is. Yep. Now we know that that's not true. I mean, there's a, it doesn't work with intangibles. Right? You don't look at your kid. You know, when I had my second son, it wasn't like, well, now I've got less love you know, for my first one. And so I, you know, like I feel like I've taken away from him. Less time, maybe, but not less, less time. Yeah, less time, but, not, but certainly not less love. And, yeah. um, you know, but we have this thing. There's a documented zero-sum bias, which is interesting. You ever hear the uh, phrase, uh, jack of all trades, master of none? That's a zero-sum bias. That's to say, if you're going to be good at a lot of things, you can't be great at something. Well, that's hmm. just not true. That's just not true. Um, so, so anyway, this is something that... It could be like Lee Rogers would be great at lots of things. Yeah, yeah and we all aspire to be. Yeah, right, we all aspire to be like Lee, Lee Rogers. Rogers. Um, <laughs> anybody have any questions? Any, any questions online that are coming in? Or? Yeah. Anybody here? I Yeah, Marilyn's making, I'm just going to reiterate, repeat while you're going through. Yeah. Marilyn's making the point that in the 70s and 80s, you said, when... Moving, moving it into, from the 80s, yeah. From the 80s onward, when, when, when no-fault divorce became more widely accepted and prevalent that marriages which were maybe would have been worked on right. in the past were sort of dismissed or just like, well, just it's too much work. But that, yeah. those destructions of those long-term, in many cases, marriages mm. had a terribly deleterious yeah, the, the attack. That's right, and of the, attack, did, the yeah. attack on marriage has been long-standing in this yeah. country, right? Since at least then, I, I mean, probably longer than that, I would imagine, right? Starting oh, with no-fault divorce and all these things, yeah. Yeah. With, with divorces. And it made it easy. And the children were left yeah. and, and all these things work together, right? Because, you, because um, you know, this is the philosophy of the culture that leads to the laws that are recreated. That, you know, it just becomes this whole it's almost mess. Like, it's almost like there's an evil will behind it. Isn't that strange? <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Wouldn't that be crazy? It's almost like, it's almost like this is orchestrated. So yeah. I can't imagine. Anyhow. That's a really good point. He, get, he does, Marilyn makes the point that if the person does get married and have a family, and, and actually we didn't talk about this and we have to move on, but, but uh, Screwtape makes the point how not only does the relationship between a husband and wife mirror the relationship of the Trinity, but even more so in a family, right? That, it, like to your point, when you, you can have multiple children, I've got three, I don't love any of them less than the other, right? It's not a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Time-wise, yeah, but not in terms of love and affection and so forth. And so maybe, I just never thought about this until you made the point, that maybe the reason why Satan has such an attack against marriage and family is because it so closely mirrors the Godhead. Anyhow, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, I, I think that's abs I think uh, it's absolutely about, true. Any, any other quick observations or? Uh, so okay, guys, how about if we move into chapter 19? I'll let you kick off on okay. 19. Um, it kind of kind of continues on with the idea of the nature of competition, mm -hmm. but I'll let you uh, lead into that. And it, yeah, it, it also reveals some really interesting stuff. Um, the first thing I want to bring up is uh, a quote uh, right at the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, Screw tape writes, "When the creation of man was first mooted." Uh, Actually, this is a little later on. When the creation of man was first mooted, and when, even at that stage, the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock and bull story about disinterested love, which he has been circulating ever since. So to give you some background to this quote, um, you know, God is, God is creating man, and, and he's very clear that, that he's creating man for, for, uh, for love and, and for man's sake, even, mm -hmm. and, and just kind of to, to increase the love of the family. But Satan, who didn't believe in love, period. Again, this is a fictional account, but there's a lot of truth to it. it didn't believe in truth, said, okay, but what are your real motives? What can you really get from them? Yeah. You know, because what can we really give God, right? Like, even when we glorify God, I mean, our, our glory is not something that he craves or needs or, you know, we're, we're adding to his splendor, but he, there's nothing that he lacks. So there's no reason. And so, you know, Satan's very confused. So again, our father, remember, that's Satan because it's a, de a devil talking, a uh, demon talking. He says, you know, so he's trying to figure out, like, okay, what's your real motives? And, and he just said, you know, it is disinterested love. And, what, you know, it's so sad about it is, you know, God's heart's broken that he doesn't understand it. He's, you know, I wish I could tell mm -hmm. you. I wish mm -hmm. you could understand. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I noticed about the kind of that tone, and, and C.S. Lewis doesn't talk about this much, but it's something you and I discussed earlier. Uh, I'm taking this Bible quote totally out of context, but when Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, right. and I'm taking it out of context, but the point is, people without guile typically, you know, take things that people say at face value, but people who are always looking, you know, use motives or underlying messages themselves are always kind of trying to find that in somebody else. Right. You know, I mean, have you ever had somebody kind of accuse you of like, uh, you know, double talk or trying to say, you know, like trying to act in a way that no, was never. contrary? No, well, you're a never priest. Happened. Nobody would ever do that to no, you. Nobody would ever do but that. But to some people, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, but it happens, right? I mean, you all, you all know this very well. You know, we, we have a tendency out of the blackness of our own hearts to assume that somebody else's motives are just like Alex. our worst, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 And, you know, we call it projection, right, uh, is a way to put that. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, I just thought this is a, that's kind of a brief aside, but I just thought that was really interesting. I thought, and, and to that point, I thought it was interesting too that Screwtape moves into this idea in paragraph two of uh, letter number 19. He, he realizes that he, in an earlier letter, <laughs> said that, you know, God really does love these hairless bipeds, right? Which I love that. And then he goes, and then he kind of back, he backpedals. Well, the truth is, this is uh, paragraph number two. The truth, this is Wormwood's uh, Screwtape speaking. The truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the humans, this, of course, is an impossibility. He must have some real motive for creating them. And then he goes on to say, and again, this is speculation by Lewis's part, but I think this is a, something to really consider. Um, this, of course, where is it? This, of course, is the whole reason uh, that, wow, boy, I lost it here. Um, oh, here we go. I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem, this idea of love, and creating human beings to be loved for its own sake, this is in paragraph two, was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy. You know, it's interesting, Jesus says in Luke, 20, Luke 24, I think, somebody correct me on that, I saw Satan falling from the sky. And everyone's, and there's no other, even in Gen, before Genesis 1, which is, you know, the beginning of history, 
Uh, there's no we, there's reference to the fall, but never a description of it, except for Jesus says, mm. uh, I saw Satan fall from the sky. Nobody really knows what the conflict was. It must have been pride somewhere, because pride is the root of all evil. Mm. But here, Lewis speculates, and it's kind of, a, kind of a creative speculation, I think, that the cause of Satan's rejection and rebellion against God was the fact that God created us in his image, right? Whatever that means, again, that's another whole thread, but also that he loves us, and that Satan just can't get around a, a, a perfect spiritual being loving something carnal, yuck, mm. right? And then secondly, how that then puts the humans in a higher level in relation to God than even angels, because we're made in God's image and they're not. And so that pride, that, that source of, that attack on Satan's pride was the reason for his rebellion against God. Now again, we don't know that that's true. It's Lewis's speculation, but we don't, we don't know the fundamental reason behind the fall other than it had to be. And it can be multiple right. things, it be, right? Oh, it sure. can be jealousy. It can be jealousy oh, yeah, of our creation. Uh, I think, you know, to your point, it certainly degrade, you know, in his mind, it, degrade, it might degrade Satan. The fact sure. that, you know, us, again, hairless bipeds are created, well, that degrade, you know, that just degrades the, all, of, all of his creations equally. You know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things I think that are really important in there. I wonder if it's worth thinking about for a second as a group. You know, we talk about God's love for us. And, you know, in fact, people, people will say, non-Christians will say, you know, God, it'll be okay, God loves you. But they don't really even stop to think what that really means. You know, what does that actually mean, that God loves you? Does it mean that God wants everything to work out really great for you? That's an open question. Does that mean God is going to do everything that you want him to do? No. Does that mean that God wants to always do, make your life happy and full of joy and peace? No. That's what people hear when they hear the word love. Love is the most abused word in the Christian vocabulary, in my opinion. Hmm. What is the word, what does it mean to say that God loves you? I'm thinking John 3.16 maybe would be one start, mm -hmm. right? That God so loved the world, you know, that he gave. Again, it's this whole idea of, of offering your being for the welfare of another. That God so loved the world that he gave his son. So the idea, this is, this is you can talk about God loving, you know, and the earth loving things and all this weird spiritual stuff that goes. It's kind of like Christian vocabulary, but cats in a worldview, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the Christian worldview of God's love for us is not God's, God's come here, Father Joshi, let me give you a noogie kind of thing. It's not that kind of stuff. It's that God actually gives of himself, his son, um, to, to save us, right? It is, a, it is mm -hmm. a verb. Anyway, I think that's something worth thinking about. And I, I think for Satan, that must have been something very difficult to, to wrestle with, how mm -hmm. God gave of himself and planned to give of himself through his son, for our sake, our being, you know, hairless bipeds, some mm -hmm. of us more so than others, I think, but that's another matter. So, uh, yeah, well, no, I think, you know, I think clarifying, clarifying love is, is a really important thing. And we talk about this uh, in context of, I know you do a lot of marital counseling about this, I do too, about um, the four loves, for example, that C.S. Lewis points out in Greek, mm -hmm. yep. and what type of love God has, right? There's, um, there's the storge, which is, you know, the natural affection and the fondness and the like, um, you know, let's go, let's go pal around, let's go hang out, you know, let's go fishing, whatever. I mean, um, that's, that's not storge. Storge is the, uh, like, um, yeah, it's just natural affection. It's holding hands, it's cuddling on a couch, you know, it's just that friendliness. Philia is the friendship, you know, let's go do, pursue common interests. Um, there's a, what's the other one? Eros. Yes, the romantic love, mm -hmm. right? And then there's a, there's the big one. Agape. Mm -hmm. Agape. Which is, which is the one. Agape, which is this love, which is self-sacrificing love. Love that puts the welfare of another ahead of its own. Mm -hmm. The idea of a marriage, right? Putting your welfare of your spouse ahead of your own welfare. 
That's why it's, that view of Christian love is so different than the world's view of love. The world's view of love is storge and philios, right? Sure. Friendship and cuddles on the couch and, yeah. you know. Does anybody drink chamomile tea anymore? I always make fun of chamomile tea, but. <laughs> no, seriously, people, people think of all that kind of thing, and that's not what love is. Love is, by nature, a sacrifice mm -hmm. of your own being for the welfare of another. Mm -hmm. that's, and that's a uniquely, agape is not a uniquely Christian word, but it is, a, it is the word used in scripture primarily, uh, certainly with regards to God's love for us and his own nature. Agape, love, is this idea of self-sacrificial self love for the welfare of another. That mm -hmm. is the hallmark of Christianity. Right? And it's not the hallmark of the culture. Culture is, on the contrary, is philios, friendship, and storge, cuddles on the couch, or whatever you want to, yeah. you, know, you know, going to the beach and walking on the, you know, enjoying mm -hmm. the sunset. Those are consumerist ideas of love. Make me feel good. True. That's not what agape is. Mm -hmm. So, anybody, any questions in the, uh, in the uh, room guess. here? Yeah. Yes, Marilyn. Um, sorry, again. The That's okay. first paragraph. Yeah, of 19. He's the worst boss you could ever have. <laughs> Screw tape, Marilyn's point's a really good one. He, he shows his hand, doesn't he? Yeah. That he, and now we know why he doesn't understand that's why he, Exactly, that's why he doesn't understand. He, and it seems like, you know, it's a good point. In, in the beginning of the, the first couple letters, it seems like Screwtape is at least feigning some affection for Wormwood, right? My dear Wormwood, right? Mm -hmm. Every letter, but it's, a, it's, a, it's smoke. Because he's here, you see that when he, gets, when he feels threatened and he feels maybe, uh oh, I shouldn't have said that, what does he do? He threatens Wormwood, don't tell anybody. Uh, he talks about that um, life is all about competition. So yeah, he lies. He lies. Ab well, abusers do the same thing. Abusers do the same thing. The same thing, all charm, you know, before and after any incidents of something like that. I that's mean, right. that's, you know, that's, you know, that's having the appearance of it, that's a good point. Um, this, I found, I thought that this was really, Again, it was kind of like the underpinnings of the philosophy of hell and heaven that were really foundational, I think, to this conversation. Um, this, is, this also really stuck out to me in this uh, chapter. Uh, you know, because Wormwood had asked Screwtape, well, is, this, is being in love good or bad? And Screwtape's answer to that I thought was really profound. He said, leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see there's no answer? Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind and right. given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. Yeah, yeah I mean, what do, you, what do you think about I that? Think, I think that's a really good point. One of the reasons why, some of you wouldn't know this, but one of the reasons why, um, how do I say this? Church, not, you know, there's nothing like a church fight, right? Mm. And, and so we, human beings by nature, like to put ourselves into camps, right? I'm this, I'm this. I'm a high churchman, high churchman, which I am. Other people are low churchmen. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. The, Satan always wants to put these divisions between us to make them fighting issues, you mm -hmm. know, to make them things of, causes of division. Mm -hmm. and, yet what, and yet, really, the problem is not candles on the altar and these different theological questions, which can be debated, right? They're debatable mm -hmm. points. Rather, the question really is, does, does what they're doing draw them closer to or further away from the Lord, mm -hmm. right? So there are theological arguments, I would argue, are worth having and, mm -hmm. and um, strongly, mm -hmm. right? Some of them, eh, you know, just kind of, is it really worth fighting over it? So I, I think that's, and that, again, that's a matter of discernment and knowing what scripture says mm -hmm. and where things can be left and maybe aren't quite clear. Well, I guess all I'm trying to say is, 
I've been through in my own life many instances of in the church where the church has been brought to places of conflict, congregations. My sending congregation was one of them. Anyway, that's another whole kettle of fish. But the idea being Satan loves to use these divisions as ways to pull us apart. And I think we've got to be careful that what, are we, are what we're doing is what we're doing bringing us closer to Jesus or further away. You know? Yeah, and I think, you know, piggybacking on that, I, th- I, don't think, I don't think it's that these things are all adiaphora. I don't think it's that they're neutral, right. but I think the point is, is that their goodness or badness is not based on our preference, but it's, it's defined by whether or not it draws dear to God. You know what I mean? So it's not yeah. that they're not good or bad. Right. It's just that that goodness or badness is, um, is defined by whether or not it brings you to God. The it, you know, of it. Yeah, because, you know, the goal, um, the telos, right, of the Christian life, especially if you, you know, are um, like Eastern Orthodox and you're in, in your goal of what, what does it mean to be human right. is unity with God. It's theosis, right? right? I mean, if that's, the, if that's the goal of the Christian life, is, is unity with God. And now all the virtues come from that, right? Like the closer you are with God, um, the more you live according to the Spirit, like walk by the Spirit is what, is what Paul says. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's the analogy the church fathers would use for theosis. It's, you know, um, at, you know, we're like iron in a blacksmith's forge. And, you know, the more we're in the fire, the more we take on his properties of light and of heat um, and we and we radiate that just because we're in it with him. And so I think you know the fact that that is that is the standard by which we judge anything else as good or bad. Um, or I think is really it draws you toward, towards God. Or yeah, not. whether yeah, or not it does. Yeah. But you know you know the way our, our our minds work. They've studied this in the last twenty years really extensively. Is whenever a thought or philosophy comes into our minds, we automatically like it or dislike it, and then we justify why we liked it or disliked it. Mm-hmm. And you know we just have to be really careful that when we say things like you know this is what Jesus thinks about this, or this is what Jesus would say in the situation. It's just like, be really careful when you say that. Be careful. Um, I, you know, unless he has said it, I'm real care, I'm I'm really hesitant to use that phrase. If you're a Christian, stay out out of giving political advice. Yeah, well. Anyway, because, well, I shouldn't say uniformly, but I think largely there are ways to cut that which are not always clear. Any any observations or comments from the from the group here? That's roughly quiet. All, <laughs> all less than 10 of you. <laughs> Appropriately socially distanced? Yes. Okay. Going back to what's good answer. Yeah, so Lee's making the point that um, in, back in the past, it was this move, the what would Jesus do? We had the bracelets. I never actually had one, yeah. but. I did. They, you did? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because you were a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, I, interestingly, I had, I had somebody make the point once uh, in that, and they said, you know, everyone has these WWJD bracelets. And it's kind of funny, in my experience, people say, what would Jesus do, tends to pretty much always wind up being what that person would want Jesus to do. Always. And they said, so they said, the question really isn't, and this is actually something to really think about, the question really isn't, what would Jesus do? The question is, what did Jesus do? Mm-hmm. Right? Because then you're not speculating. Because when you start speculating, you know, it's like the, uh, the, classic, the classic image of, you probably know the source of this, where that most of human relations with God is a man, man looking down a well and seeing a reflection of himself yep. looking back. Sure. That the more you think that, uh, that God, you know, speculate about what God is like, he typically kind of tells you what you want to hear because it really isn't him. So it's not what would Jesus do, it's mm-hmm. what did he do because that we do know. So you had a comment, Paul? I, I just finally, for the first time ever, had this un- understanding. An epiphany. Selfish love <laughs> is really perfectly unselfish love. It's perfect love. That's right. 
And now I get for the first time really I haven't thought much about it. But, uh, yeah. God is, is because God has to be perfect. Correct. And if I follow my logic train. You're on the train, man. <laughs> Paul's, Paul's point. The, let me. The, the devil couldn't understand. God has to be compelled to be perfect, which means it might even be seeming weak to be unselfish right. love. Right. But God has to. God, well, I would, I, would, I would qualify that. So Paul's point is God is perfect, therefore he, ha he has to experience perfect love. I would actually, I agree with you, but I would tweak it a little bit, and I would say God, whatever God, since God is perfect, whatever he does is perfect. So, and it's a, it's a minor hash of maybe, maybe not even significant. But the, the point being, yours is, a, yours is correct, that perfect love is this love which is manifested by the nature of God, which is agape, right? which is what we talked about with this mm -hmm. self-giving love for the benefit of self sacrificial love, even to the point of death, right? Paul says it's about, about husbands and wives, right? Mm -hmm. You know, wives, love your husbands. Husbands, be prepared to die for your wives. It's a double standard. Oh, it is. Big time. That's yeah. another kettle of fish. But your point's a good one, right? That perfect love is love which, which manifests how God treats, has treated us. Not would treat, has treated, because that we know. That's really the point. Paul had an it's a good thing. That's a good day when somebody has yeah. an epiphany, man. Well, you know. <laughs> right? That's a good, we can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and to piggyback on that, you know, I, what I think is really, what's interesting is where that love is manifested, it is, it is something um, that God manifests. Like you said, it comes out of his nature. So we're not trying to guess what he would, what God would do in a specific scenario. We're living out of that nature. Right. And it's interesting because it isn't marriage itself or family even itself that is intrinsically perfect or good. It's how God is manifested in those relationships. You know, right. Screwtape says in this chapter, he says, for marriage, though the enemy's invention has its uses. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I come from, as you know, um, a non-denominational evangelical background, which I'm really thankful for, mm -hmm. for many things. Um, one of the things that can be prevalent in, in I, I'm, only, I'm only speaking for that culture, it might be a lot of other places, I just don't know, is this myth that the only satisfying life a person can live is within the context of a nuclear family. That your family is the sort, you know, that, that is what a satisfying life is, is with the context of a nuclear family, biological if possible, um, but that's, you know, that is the root foundation and source of a good life. And um, focus on the family, which has a lot of good stuff, um, certainly perpetuates us a little bit. And I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs, but I will say this. Scripture, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, that you can be a fully satisfied, unmarried person and give your life to the glory of God and have a fullness of life. And I think there are a lot of people who, who um, either struggle with um, different things that would make it difficult for them to enter into uh, a biblical marriage. And because of that, they feel like, you know, well, since I, since I can't buy into this myth and have that fully satisfying life, mm -hmm. I can't live a full Christian life. And that's just not true either. Yeah, I think one, that's a good, I had never thought about this before, but I think maybe one distinction between sort of an evangelical, broadly speaking, and more Catholic-leaning, broadly speaking, understanding of that would be maybe the evangelical leaning is more that the church, the nuclear, sorry, the nuclear family is the ground of relational wholeness. Mm -hmm. I would submit to you that if you look historically at the church fathers all the way through, that's true, but is also the church. Mm -hmm. So being part of the church is, you know, it's the family, it's the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. That is another way to see that unity uh, and living out as a family, right? It's no, it's, no, it's no accident that you refer to clergy priests as father, mm -hmm. right? Because we are a family in Christ. So you may be a single person, right? Mm -hmm. You still have a family. And it's 
So that's a really, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because you're absolutely right. The way that we talked about Trinity's love being made manifest in relationship, right. we, you can't be a solitary career, you know, solely career driven, don't care about people sort of person still manifest, I don't think, the Christian life that God calls you to, right. but you can be a part of those relationships um, sure. that buffer that. You know, I mean, yeah. Any, any comments? We wrap up 19? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So let's look at chapter 20. Um, uh, we, uh, here C.S. Lewis dials in on the idea of chastity. And he, I love this. Uh, my dear Wormwood, I know, here's to your point, Marilyn. My dear Wormwood, I know with great displeasure that the enemy has for the time being put a forcible end to your direct attack on the patient's chastity. Let me stop there and make an observation because people don't always understand this. You know, Satan does tempt us, but he always does it with God's permission. In other words, in other words, uh, if you look, if you know the book of Job, right? Uh, Satan goes to God and says, "I would like permission to tempt him." You know, I can get Job to deny you, and the Lord says, "Well, you you can do this, this, and this, but you can't do this." He puts so God restricts. There's no in other words, in other words the the devil and Satan and the Lord are not in a fair fight, right? So Satan is allowed to tempt us, to grow us, to help us to mature and to mind us. We have to fall back on the Lord at, in all things. Um, but, but God does not, God puts an end to the enemy's attack. He says so right here. I note with great displeasure that the enemy, God, has for the time being put a, love this, forcible end to your direct attack on the patient's chastity. Hmm. So God does step in and say, all right, that's enough. You know, mm-hmm. enough. You had, you know. So I think that's an important thing to be to be reminded that when you're when you're struggling and being tempted, it's not because God has turned your back his back on you. It may feel that way for Job. It certainly did. And if you've ever suffered, it does feel that way, right? It does for me sometimes. Uh, but you know that whatever's happening to you is God is permitting for your growth, and it's not pleasant when it happens. But but you have the assurance as a Christian that that. Nothing that happens to you, even if it's suffering, is not, A, beyond redemption and not for your own, own, own holiness. I mean, Jesus himself being the prime, Jesus is always the prime example, right? Whenever you're like, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's look at the Lord, right? Let's look at Jesus, because he suffered, right? And uh, he learned patience through what he suffered, mm-hmm. right? Hebrews says. So anyway, I just wanted to draw that to your attention. And, then, and I love here, and then screw tape again to Marilyn's point. Um, you ought to have stopped before you reach that stage. <laughs> boy, oh boy. I've had, I've had bosses like screw tape. It's not pleasant. <laughs> no comments from the peanut gallery there, Gritter. <laughs> um, you right. know, but to your point, you know, James yeah. 4, 7, right? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, that's the, that's the whole strategy is, is, is you know, let's, let's make them think that they're, they're stuck in this forever. That's right. Uh, there's all sorts of acronyms that people use about when to pay really close attention to uh, your state and when you could fall into sin. Halt is one. Have you heard that one? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Mm-hmm. That's something like um, typically in like circles to talk about addiction. It's like, you know, pay attention to these things um, because a lot of times what draws us into sin is because we're both physical and That's spiritual right. beings. Sometimes just physical things draw us in. I mean, you've ever been really tired yeah. and wanting to sleep and gotten extremely angry. I know you haven't, but I'm just telling you from a human's perspective, that's no, <laughs> you know, but it's true though. Like, you know, oh, there's yeah, all of sorts of things that, that come together. And if you can, sometimes you really, it's interesting. Sometimes you just pray and then you meet that physical, that actual physical need and things clear up for you. I wonder if that's why God made a day just for rest. It, yeah. you know, it very we well could be. I'm being sarcastic, but, uh, 
Anyway, I do mm -hmm. want to point out one thing. He, he talks about in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 20 about this idea of, of, um, of, this idea of producing uh, t taste and sexual mores in culture. It was actually, and it's a little bit dated because mores have changed from the 40s to now, but actually, in some sense, it really hasn't because he makes a comment here. Uh, I love, it's at the end of, let's see, paragraph one, very, of the second to last sentence of paragraph two. He says, uh, as we make, you know, have this idea of, uh, he says, women not being as voluptuous, but more like boys. I mean, I don't know, whatever that means as far as that period of time. But then he says something here that I think still sticks with us today. As a result, this is great. As a result, we, hell, are more and more directing the desires of men into something which does not exist. In other words, you, when you, when you, the more that culture, think about it, the culture creates an image of beauty, whether for male, men or women, I suspect, um, but those things aren't real, right? And that is, that's destructive both to the idea of human, you know, Females, I've got three daughters, so I know a bit about this. <laughs> um, how women feel about themselves if the culture says you should be like this and you don't fit that cookie cutter, right? It's destructive. Mm. And because that cookie cutter isn't actually real. And it, changes, and it changes all the time. Right. You know, I, did, I, I looked this up too, and um, you know, way back with Pythagoras, with the Greeks, you know, he had like, he came up with the perfect ratio of like, you know, what a, what a woman's face should look like. Uh, what did he say? Right? Yeah, he did. He said it should be two thirds as wide as they are long and perfectly symmetrical. Ah. Okay, great. Thanks, Pythagoras. Right. Um, and, and Greek and early societies, you know, and, and this happened for men too, right? Face, I, I love that, by the way, one of his quotes in here is, um, he's hating on beards, right? He says, uh, he, sa he says, we have now for many centuries triumphed over nature to the extent of making certain secondary characteristics of the male, such as the beard, disagreeable to nearly all the females. Especially if they Thanks. are Episcopalians. Especially Episcopal, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's, that, that's no longer the case. But, you know, it is, it's just interesting because these things do change they all do the change. time. Yeah. Interesting, like, this is a totally... Uh, Total segue, but you said Pythagoras said that the symmetry of the human face makes it beautiful. Mm -hmm. Interesting, they've done st psychological studies on this. If you actually take a human face, like take your own face, and you can actually use a computer to do it, and make it perfectly symmetrical, basically take your face and flip it, so you have the two sides, your face is perfectly symmetrical, it's creepy. It's not, an, it's an actually, Pythagoras is wrong, but he didn't have a computer, he didn't know anything. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, he couldn't create a model. It's actually, if you, if you, if you have nothing to do and you're, I don't know, playing around uh, on the computer, yeah. find a picture if you can and make your face perfectly symmetrical or any face, you'll see it's like, it's kind of weird. It can't, I mean, you really kind of can't put your finger on it. It's unnatural, right? Human faces are not symmetrical. In fact, if you look at, it's interesting, I just read an article about this years ago when I was in, uh, in ergonomics in graduate school, actually, about this thing. And they were talking about how, how um, alien images, you know, alien heads, you know, little green men, you see that they're always perfectly symmetrical and it's creepy. Anyway. It's got nothing to do with screw tape letters at all, but that's okay. <laughs> no, I think, no, that, I that's a good tangent. What's that? Another effect that it's popular with culture, though. What's that? Another indictment of popular culture. Indeed. Like you said before. Yeah. Another indictment of popular, popular culture. Yes. Yeah, and, and he talked earlier in the earlier le uh, letters about uh, the outside world and, and the inner world. Yeah. Who would that represent all the outer world? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I think what's interesting, I noticed this when, um, you brought this up earlier, when, um, when Instagram first came out, like that was, you know, then that was the thing, and it really wasn't, wasn't that long ago. They had these, um, 
uh, hashtag things for each day of the week. Oh yeah. Man Crush Monday. I forgot what Tuesday was. Uh, uh, Woman Crush Wednesday was Wednesday. Women, women or something like that. Woman have, or women. And he'd always post. They'd always post like pictures of of um, people. But I noticed that when whenever they did Women Crush Wednesday, I brought this up to the youth group ten years ago, whenever it was, um, that they were always about people that were physically attractive. None of them were about women who accomplished great things. None of them about women who were virtuous, like the saints that we celebrate at the mm. church, um, or for the, you know for their virtues, character traits, for their godliness. It was it was only about you know, they were all completely one-dimensional, and you know we can hate on culture uh, for that certainly. Um, but you know I think that's actually if you look back at what's depicted in art and everything, most of the time the people who are venerated are venerated based on their. For women, it's typically looks. You know, for men, it's whatever the ideal man is in his. You know, whether it's the solitary cowboy, some you know, at one age, or you know, the the corporate guy. So, anyway, we just we always miss the point, and I think Christian men miss the point a lot. And when they when they look for spouses to marry, that they look on that same one dimensional plane, and they don't say who's going to be a, a godly woman. Um, right. And I, again, in my experience, I be, I might be totally wrong about this, but I think I think women, in my experience, are a little better at looking, you know, below that first layer. Of godliness? The, oh, before oh, that appearance. first layer of, yeah, of the of veneer of a, a physical appearance. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, we could do a poll, but <laughs> I don't think we need to. Any, you know? any, any comments from uh, the room today? Yes, Marilyn, another one. Well, Marilyn's point is that yeah. Screwtape is saying that chastity is unhealthy, and sex since that period of time has become, I would say, more physically, I mean, dangerous. I mean, mm -hmm. we've got AIDS and all sorts of different things now. It's, they, it's certainly not gotten any... Uh, better, you know? And that's to, that's so. to his point in, um, what was it, Problem of Pain that we studied last year, when he talks about how each age has its virtues and vices, yeah. and how, you know, and how ages past, you know, they might have been cruel, which I don't want to downplay that, but they also had, you know, were known for their chastity, temperance, courage, you know, things that we, you know, we just either don't care about or we mock, we're cynical about. Because we, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to, yeah, we, when it's a lot easier to be cynical and mock something that you don't understand, actually, right? Actually try to do it. So... so. Any other comments from the group? Is this better, doing it this way or doing this stand up? Okay. I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm being interviewed by. <laughs> it's, better, it's better than being on the couch like this in this situation, That's so right. we're good. Anyhow. All right, so uh, if there's no other questions, we can wrap up. It's, uh, but we'll close in prayer. Before we do that, let's cover, I think three chapters is a pretty good speed. Yeah, I think so. This works out pretty well. Um, so let's do 21, 22, and 23 for next week. Same time, same channel. And uh, if you can be here before 4 o'clock, if you're going to be here, uh, if, if at all possible, that's great, because just coming in once we start filming, um, it's a little bit easier that way. And hopefully, um, we can continue to social distance, and, but also have a group here, which is sort of a little more familiar. So um, if you have any questions uh, as you read the chapters, as you're read, you know, reading through, write them down, bring them in. That way we can have a little more dialogue here if you'd like. And if you're online, uh, please feel free to use the comment section on the website or there is a link to a text number right on that page. That text number will go to our uh, Trinity phone, uh, the bat phone, as it were. Hmm. And I think you've got access to that, mm -hmm. right? I do. And so he can, if you want to text that uh, question in, we will uh, we'll do our best to answer it. So, all right, all good stuff.